Gracious Lord, we are just so humbled to be here and just so thankful to you because you're the one who brought all of us together from a variety of different backgrounds, and we're just just so thankful for that. And at the same time, we recognize that because we do come from a variety of different backgrounds, there are challenges sometimes that come with that. And so I just pray that as we focus on your word tonight, that we would come away just with a unified goal and a greater love for one another. And I just pray that all of us would be ready to receive your word, uh, that I would have clarity of mind to speak it, but also those that are here uh, that are just so kind to be here, that they would be ready to listen and ready to walk in your wisdom as it applies to this particular subject of unity and how to uh, work through different differences we come across. So we pray these things in your precious name. Amen. So a while back, someone I know had her crush ask her out on a date. And as you know, like, that's kind of a big deal. And her heart was, like, racing. She had, like, all the butterflies. And she was just like, yes, like, absolutely. Like, this was her crush for a long time. And so she agreed. And he specifically asked her out on a date to a movie. And she was like, yeah, 100%. Like, let's do it. So she goes out on this date, but she quickly finds herself just like with a rock in her stomach. She's so guilty. She's so ashamed. She knows she's disobeying God. And she's just like not enjoying the movie, not enjoying the date at all. In fact, she's like wishing she never said yes. So at this point, you're probably like, oh my gosh, what kind of movie are we talking about? Like this must have been like terrible. Or what kind of guy was she going out with? Like she must not have had any discernment or something. Well, Actually, the guy she went out with was super solid, and the movie they saw was, like, a kid's movie. So, like, just so you have a context, that wasn't even the reason. It was because she be- she came from a very legalistic background, and she was taught, and she believed, that movie theaters were evil. Like, to even go into a movie theater was disobeying the Lord. So that was her belief, and so... She never told her crush about this at that time, like, so he didn't even know that was her conviction until afterwards. (laughs) So that's kind of a silly story, but just so you know, that is now my mother-in-law, and that was my father-in-law who asked her out, and that was way back in 1977. They saw a movie that I don't know about, but maybe you do. It's called, um, I think it's called, yeah, Herbie Goes to, Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo. 1970, have you guys watched that? I've never seen that. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, so she saw an innocent movie, right? Like, that wasn't the big deal, but it was movie theaters. Like, she thought they were, like, inherently evil. So, obviously, I know you guys probably don't believe that, or you don't know people that believe that, but you do know people that have differences in conviction, right? Like, you know people that have different backgrounds and maybe different conscience issues. So, like, for instance, maybe some more common ones would be, like, maybe listening to secular music. You believe that's okay, like, you can listen to some. But there are some people who believe, like, no, I can't listen to any secular music. Like, that goes against my conscience. I can only listen to Christian music. And then there are times where maybe, like, you know, a family where they believe that all alcohol is strictly, like, sinful, Whereas your family says drinking alcohol in moderation is okay. And so what do you do with those differences? 
and I just want to be clear, actually, at the outset, I think I probably should be. I'm not talking about issues that the Bible explicitly calls sin. I just want to lay that out there so it's very clear. We're only addressing conscience issues tonight, uh, not things that the Bible says, like, this is sin. So I just want to make sure that that's out there. But what do we do with differences in conscience? So it's easy at that point to ask, like, if you do have differences with your friends, to be like, okay, who's right? Like, let's kind of like hash this out. You know, who's, who's godly or who has the right opinion? And I would actually argue that these are the wrong questions. In fact, these promote more division than unity. And so I want to show you from scripture. Tonight we'll be in uh, Romans 14. So actually I would ask you to just open to it now. I think that would be helpful. And I want to show you from Scripture the right question that God wants us to ask. And that is, how can we pursue one another in love when there is a difference in conscience with the goal of unity? So I want us, and I'll just repeat that, God wants us to know how we can pursue one another in love when there's a difference in conscience with the goal of unity. So we know this because of Romans 14, and that's the text that I had you turn to. So this particular portion of Romans is part of a chiasm. I feel like you've already heard that today. I'm kind of my husband's echo, but um, it's a chiasm specifically spanning chapters 12 to 14 of Romans. And I wish we had time to like really delve into all of that, but just to touch on it briefly, basically, as you know, a chiasm, it's kind of like a sandwich. You've got bread on one side, bread on the other, just like our lunch today and your favorite meat in the middle. So in this case, chapter 12 talks about unity, chapter 14 talks about unity, and then chapter 13, where the heart of the chiasm, the meat of the chiasm, is talking about love. So that's specifically, if you guys want to look on your own time, chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, that Paul says, we need to love one another. And it's really cool because when it's a chiasm, the author is able to kind of communicate like an overarching theme, but then also like bring you full circle. So I don't know. I just, I know we don't use it anymore these days, hardly at all when we're writing our papers, but it's a really cool device. So for instance, like he's talking about in chapter 12, you may have different giftedness. You may have, you know, different like, you know, cultural backgrounds and things like that. And at the end, he really goes into the cultural background. And then chapter 13, he's just like driving that main point, talking about love. So again, we don't have time to really go into all of that. I want to, but let's focus on this text tonight. And I'm going to attempt to go through all of Romans 14, which I know is ambitious. So bear with me and just realize we're not going to be going word for word. And actually, I think you'll probably thank me for that because we'll be here all night if we do that. (laughs) I tried to do that on my own, but not today. Okay, so let's read our text together. I'll read it to you guys and you can follow along. So starting in chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. 
One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Um, and then he goes on to say, So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on the one on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Woo! That was a lot, right? But that is our text tonight, and I know you guys are well taught here at Grace Bible. You know that we can't just go from there and be like, okay, so how does this apply to us today? Like, we have to do some proper Bible study. We have to kind of set the cultural tone of what was going on. Why did Paul even write those words? Why were some eating only vegetables, right? Like, there's a lot of questions here that I think are worth answering. So I think it's appropriate to talk about the culture, first of all, that Paul was writing to. So let's quick history lesson. Way back in AD 49, back when there were emperors, a lot of them, the emperor Claudius exiled the Jews, both Christian and non-Christian alike, from Rome. He banned them for five years. So as you can imagine, five long years, they had to uproot from their homes, find a new home, live somewhere else for a while. And then eventually the ban was lifted after five years. Okay, so that's a long time. So as you can imagine, only Gentiles are occupying Rome. The synagogues are empty. The church is now filled with just whatever new Gentile converts were there. And so the churches that once had Jews, of course, and maybe a small number of Christian Gentiles, they were just Gentile converts now. 
So eventually the ban was lifted. They were allowed back, but the Jews took a while. Like, you know, it takes a long time for you to uproot again and be like, okay, I kind of want to go back to Rome, but it takes a while. So basically, as you can imagine, you know, the church in Rome looked very different. And so a couple years after the ban was lifted, you know, the church at Rome, where Paul's writing to, is now experiencing some tension. So Paul wrote the book of Romans a couple years after the Jews were allowed back. And so this major event really sets up for the history and like what was going on at that time. So I think it's super helpful to know that. I know it might not sound super exciting, but that's what was going on at that time. So it is pertinent. So not surprisingly, the Jewish Christians probably were a little afraid to go back to their home church. Like, I don't know about you, but if you knew that people that had a Gentile background and you came from a Jewish background were running things, you'd probably be like, what have they changed? Like, what have they done? Like, have they kept our standards? Like, what are they doing? So just a quick background on the Gentile converts. A lot of them, if not all of them, were converted from paganism, right? So they were used to celebrating in their pagan, you know, feasts called love feasts, which were like a daily ritual where they would sacrifice meat to idols. And it was just full of like sensuality and lots of sin. But now that they were believers, they decided, you know what? Instead of those love feasts, we're going to just start honoring the Lord every single day. Like, we're going to make that our mission. And the Jews weren't around to be like, the Sabbath, (laughs) you know, wait. (laughs) Like, no, not every day, just one day. Like, that's our main day. So, you know, the Gentiles, they changed things a little bit, right? They made every day like, you know, the Sabbath. And that, to them, was really great, you know. And from their perspective, their cultural background, it makes a lot of sense. And so they also enjoyed a lot of meats, right? Like they were, you know, well-cultured, I'm sure. And they were exposed to things that the Jews weren't. Maybe they ate bacon. I don't know. And so like they were a little bit more loose with their dietary. Like they didn't really have dietary restrictions like the Jews. The Jews were a lot more rigid. So as you can imagine, the Jews coming home are like pretty shocked. They're like, hold on. Not only is the Sabbath, the Sabbath a really special day to honor the Lord, and you've kind of ruined that. You can't just change that. Uh, we need to make that our main day. We don't feel comfortable eating the foods that you're bringing around. Like, this is not cool. And so they're like, you know, you're consuming food that might have been sacrificed the day before, you know, to an idol. Like, how dare you? And so this was a huge tension. As you can imagine, they were like this. They weren't like this, right? They were kind of hitting, butting heads on this. And so they didn't know how to proceed together. They were like, you know, we know like God wants us to be unified, but they just didn't know how. This was very, very tense between them. So this is the context of Romans 14. This is where we start getting into what you probably have heard, the weaker, stronger brother argument. So at the outset, I want you to notice that Paul does recognize the category of weaker, stronger brother. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, and then he goes on to use, you know, the stronger and the stronger brother. So that's something he identifies. And I think that's not something we ever need to shy away from. He identifies that. But in the same breath, as you probably noticed, 
he makes clear that both are equal before God. It's not like stronger brothers here, weaker brothers like way below before. Like, no, like they were equal before God. They were both honoring to God. And I think that's not emphasized always. Sometimes we open our Bible and we're like, okay, yeah, I think I'm the stronger brother. Cool. And then you just like close it, you move on. It's like, that's not the point. If you do that, you've missed the entire point. So at the end of the day, both are equal to God and both are honoring to God. So I want to explain that more. We'll flesh that out more. But I also want to explain that just because you're the weaker, you know, the weaker person or the weaker brother, it doesn't mean you're in sin. You're still just as honoring to God. So I just want to make that very clear at the outset. You'll see what I mean more or what Paul means, hopefully (laughs) more. Um, And then likewise, if you're the stronger person, it doesn't mean you're better than the weaker person. That can also be, I think, a big misunderstanding. Uh, So that's just simply not true. Um, So I think the texts in this command that are really helpful that you're going to see very clearly is not to convince the weaker brother, hey, you're the weaker brother, you need to be the stronger brother like me. That's not at all what Paul's going after. He's actually saying you need to accept one another, and I think that's very unique Um, is kind of a surprising way to handle differences. We're so used to just getting in each other's face and just like, let's argue and figure out who's right and who's wrong. That's not what we want to do. Okay, so I want us to look at verse 1, and he actually addresses this very thing. He says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So right at the outset, he's like, I know that you guys are hitting each other, like you're not getting along, but... The solution is not to argue it out. The solution is not to, like, you know, see who's right, who's wrong. So he actually acknowledges that. So he's like, you know, as for the one who is weak in faith, actually welcome him. That's the opposite of what they would think. And so uh, verse 2 describes the first issue that the Jew and Gentiles were disagreeing upon. Um, I already kind of touched on this, but the pagan meat markets, just so you know, they often sold cheap meat. And so it was common for a Gentile to go there because, I mean, like, it's a good bargain. I mean, I'd probably go there too, right? Like, I feel like, why not? And so they, they decided, like, this is not a problem for, that, for them. In fact, they were used to, Gentiles were so used to eating this kind of meat, and they realized that God made everything for us to eat and enjoy at the end of the day. And as long as they gave thanks while they ate it, they were fine. And so... As you can see, as you read on, so verse 2 says, One person believes he may eat anything, that's a Gentile, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So the Jews actually went so far on the other side that they were like, we don't even want a chance. Like some of them were like, I don't even want a chance touching meat that might have been sacrificed to idols and therefore unclean. So I'm going to eat only vegetables. Like that's how seriously they took this. So I think that's helpful for us to know because... I don't think we're used to that kind of thing when it comes to food. We eat basically anything here in America, almost to a fault. Anyway, that's another story. Um, So at this point, sometimes we ask, again, who's right here? Is a Gentile right? Is a Jew right? Who's right? Both are right. It's not either or. It's both and. Did the Gentiles understand their liberty in Christ better? Yes. Did the Jews maybe have kind of an arbitrary thing that they set out for God? Yes. But were they both trying to seek to honor the Lord to the best of their knowledge and ability? Yes, also yes. So at the end of the day, they were obeying the Lord from their heart. 
And so in verse three, we get our first commands. He says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. So when he says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, he's saying, you Gentile, you know, you can eat, you know, I realize this, you know, you can eat what God has made. But you're tempted to look down on the Jew and be like, man, you just don't know what you're missing out on. Like, bacon is so good, you know, and you're just like tempted to look down on the Jew like you're stuck with your vegetables, you know, sad for you. And you can kind of despise that person, right? You can look down on them and be like, you ignorant person. Whereas the command for the weaker brother, there's also a command for him. He says, let not the one, this is the end of verse three, who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Why? For God has welcomed him. God has welcomed both of them. So to the weaker brother, the temptation might have been, you're not as godly as I am. because." And so he's judging the Gentile. The Jew's like, you're not as godly as I am because I am obeying God down to the letter of the law, making sure there is no sin happening here. So that was the weaker brother, ultimately, right? The Gentile in this particular area was the stronger brother. Paul acknowledges that. And the Jew was the weaker brother. So at the end of the day, though, and he'll reiterate this again, why do we still have to work together for unity? Because God has welcomed and accepted both of us, right? He's accepted both Jew and Gentile. So at the end of the day, we're to follow God and accept one another to promote that unity that God has created. So in verse 4, we can look at that. He says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands and falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. So now he's really talking about, okay, who has the authority to determine what's right and what's wrong? Only God, right? He's the one who determines that this is like the plumb line that we all follow. He's the one who's Lord over all of us. And he actually is going to get into this whole lordship theme. So you might have heard it when I was reading. And if you didn't, just look along as we kind of glance at these verses because Lord is like used over and over. Lord, Lord, Lord. In fact, starting at the end of verse 13, he says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So put on the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So he's already setting that up again. It's a chiasm, right? It's all connected. Okay, so in verse 5, he talks about the second issue, which we touched on, but it's the issue of the Sabbath. There are two different convictions, two different conscience issues. So just like for food, Paul says here, it's okay if you're fully convinced. He actually goes on to say that, and he'll actually bring up food again. So look at verse 5 with me. One person esteems one day, the Sabbath, as better than another. That's the Jew. While another person, the Gentile, esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So I can't get into all of the details there, but basically he's saying, if you have that conviction, stay with that conviction. Okay, if you're fully convinced of that, then that is most honoring to God. So you need to stay in that. And if you come across, you know, a brother or sister in Christ that has a different conviction than yours, you're to encourage that brother or sister in Christ to stay with their conviction, not to change to yours. I think that's something that we tend to do. So because at the end of the day, he goes on to say, verse six, the one who observes the day 
Why does he observe it? Is it because he's trying to hold up a legalistic standard? No, he's observing it because he's honoring the Lord. And then he says, the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. So the Gentile does that too. Since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So both are really, at the end of the day, right. So that's not the argument here. The argument is a matter of how do we mesh even when we have those differences. So he goes on to say he really wants to drive home. We're not the Lord of each other. We serve one master who's Lord over all of us. And he's the one we report to. So he really drives us home in the rest of this particular section from verses 7 through 12. So as you just glance on, I would encourage you to just glance down and you'll see like, Lord, Lord, Lord. He uses that a lot. That's whenever an author in scripture, you know this, repeats himself. It's not because he's just like forgot that he just said something about that. He's trying to drive home a point. He's trying to be like, hello, like this is what I'm trying to communicate to you. Pay attention. So let's pay attention to this. So he says in verse seven, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. And he goes on. I don't have time to read all the verses again, but basically he's really driving home. We serve one Lord. You know, he even says because Christ died and was raised, he represents both the living and the dead. And then at the same, by the same token, he quotes in verse 11, Isaiah 45, which talks about the unity in God saving Gentiles. He says, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every knee, Jew and Gentile. Um, You can look at that context on your own. It's Isaiah 45, verse 23, if you want to look at that later. Uh, But he says, and every tongue shall confess to God. So Paul, in verse 10, is basically like, in light of this, in light of Christ being Lord over us, he asks to the Jew, why are you judging your brother? There was, you know, obviously this tension here. And he says, uh, verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why are you looking down on him? And then he says, um, or you to the Gentile, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Do you guys remember the Bema seat? It's different than the great white throne judgment, right? The Bema seat is where we as believers, if you're a believer, you will stand before the Lord one day. You're not going to receive punishments because of Christ's blood that was shed for us, right? We have that propitiation and that confidence, but we will give a report of our lives. And he's bringing that up right here because he wants us to consider you're not giving a report for your friend's life. You know, you're giving a report for your own life personally. You can't speak on the account of a friend and be like, well, you know, Julianne the other day, yeah, she... You should have seen her like she really didn't hold up your commands like, you you know, she should have like, we don't you're not going to do that to me like, right. And I'm not going to do that to you because at the end of the day, the Lord is asking us to call. OK, what did you do? And with that, it's actually a really neat thing. He's going to reward us and give us blessings. That's actually a really neat thing to look forward to. It's not a fearful thing. But the reason why he brings it up in this context is because he wants to communicate Jew and Gentile is going to stand before me one day at the Bemothy. Bema seat. And so that's a really cool thing to consider for them as well. So a helpful illustration, hopefully, is basically imagine you're the oldest sibling, or maybe you don't have to imagine you are the oldest sibling of your family. It can be really easy to act like maybe your younger sibling's parent at times. 
and kind of tell them what to do. And so let's say one day your mom decides, like, okay, I want, you know, your younger sibling is going to clean the whole kitchen, you know, from top to bottom. And you kind of overhear that, and you're like, okay. And so then a little while later, you come in and check on them, like, oh, what are you doing? And they're like, oh, yeah, just cleaning the kitchen. And you're like, oh, you're not doing it the right way. I would do it this way. And you just kind of take over, and you're like, you need to do this, this, and this. And your mom comes in, she's like, what are you doing? And you're like, oh, I was just telling them because they're doing it all wrong. They're not doing it how I would clean the kitchen. And she's like, I'm fine with how they were cleaning the kitchen. It's totally fine. They're accomplishing the same thing that you're accomplishing, even if they're not doing it your way. So at the end of the day, the authority, your mom, said this is okay with her. But you try to come in as not the authority and say, it's not okay with me. It doesn't matter, right? Your mom overrules you. And so we need to be careful not to do this in a spiritual sense, because sometimes we can, whether we are thinking about it or not, we can kind of look over our friend's life and be like, hey, you should brush up on this area. You know, you're kind of missing the mark here. That's not our job. That's not our job. When it comes to conscience issues like this, we are not to do that. In fact, that's, as we'll see, uh, the very opposite of what we're supposed to do. So... In verse 13, he goes on to say, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide, or literally in the Greek, he says, judge this. If you're going to judge something, don't judge your friend. Judge this, that you will never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So what he means by this in this context is that if someone believes, like the Jew, let's say you're a Gentile, he can't eat certain kinds of food and you're just like gobbling up, you know, your ham bacon in front of them. And they're just like, oh my gosh, like that. I would never touch that. And this is really tempting me because that looks amazing, but I can't have that, you know, and that whole thing, like that would be causing your brother or sister to sin, right? So that by even expressing your freedom, you're kind of messing it up for yourself because you're causing them to sin. So if we had more time, I would actually have you turn to a similar passage you guys might be familiar with. It's First uh, Corinthians 8. And at the end of that chapter, Paul, in verse 13, uh, Paul basically says, If it would help my brother, I would never eat meat again. Like, that's kind of a sacrifice. You know, you think about that. Paul didn't have that conviction. And so, uh, just to clarify, too, at this point, conscience issues are not random, like, just pulling out of thin air, like, preferences. These are biblical convictions. So the Jew, biblically, was convinced because of the law. They had to keep the Sabbath and all these dietary restrictions. And so, and the, you know, the Gentiles had a valid argument as well, right? They believed that God made everything, and they could have certain foods or celebrate on certain days. So, anyway, just wanted to clarify that. Uh, In verse 14, he goes on to say that nothing is unclean in itself. He's like, I know that, and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus. Nothing is unclean in itself. But, and this is something to really pay attention to, it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. And I don't know if we really consider that enough. And don't worry, I will drive this home to our culture today, just so you know. But I think... I need to do justice to what Paul has said. It's really important. Uh, But he says, um, just like Jesus talks about in Mark 7, 
nothing is unclean in and of itself, right? Piece of food. It's not like, this is sin right here. Like, no, like it's not unclean in and of itself. Just like a movie theater is not unclean in and of itself. We know that, right? But for my mother-in-law, because she believed that it was sin, it was sin for her. Because she, she was going in with the knowledge that I am disobeying God by doing this because she was fully convinced that that was sin, right? So hopefully that's starting to clarify. But basically the Jews, they were so used to the law, you know, even though they had new freedoms in Christ, they were so used to the law. And the law was to be a training kind of system for them, almost like training wheels that would eventually come off. But they were still kind of holding on to that. That was their comfort zone. That was where they wanted to stay. And so there were certain things that while they maybe could do it now because of Christ's coming, they just were in their old habits and rituals. And that was their way of pleasing the Lord to the best of their ability. In verse 15, Paul goes on to say, If you are grieving your brother by eating foods and he is tempted to sin, how are you loving that person? So I want us to look at that. So he says, for if, in verse 15, your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. What was the heart of the chiasm? Love, right? So he's bringing that up again. He's like, remember, love, in order to have unity, you need love. And so he's reminding us of that main theme. And he says, by what you eat, do not destroy. And literally in the Greek, it's like beating someone up. He's like, do not beat up your brother or sister in Christ's conscience. Don't do that. That is not loving. That's the opposite of loving. In verse 16, he says that even the world will speak of that as evil. If they see you like not loving your brother or sister in Christ and actually being selfish by doing something that you're like, oh, it's my freedom. So who cares about, you know, my brother or sister in Christ? If you're doing that, the world looks at that as like, hmm. This Christianity thing isn't much different than any other like religion, you know. They don't see that because why? In John 13, Jesus says, you need to love one another. That's how the world will know you are mine. That's a very distinct thing that the Christian, you know, what we have with God, like he instilled in us the ability to love sacrificially. So I think it's really uh, neat that Paul actually brings that up because he's really trying to drive home, like, even the world. Like, look at your testimony. And so we need to show the transformation of the Lord by sacrificing sometimes, even if it's not easy, if it's the most loving thing to do uh, for our brother or sister in Christ. So in verse 17, he says, uh, he's really reminding us of the kingdom priorities He's like, the kingdom of God, it's not a matter of eating and drinking. Like, that's going to pass away, right? But it's of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So he's trying to remind you, like, wake up. Look at your priorities. You need to realize this food is passing away. It's not worth destroying or maligning what God has done, God's work. In verse 18, he says, not only, so if you do this, if you love and you make the sacrificial commitment to love your brother or sister in Christ in this way, not only will you be approved by Christ, he says in verse 18, but you'll also be approved by men. So the same kind of thing, but the opposite side of the coin, right? He's like, if you do this, then the world will actually be like, hey, that's different. We can't love it in that way. That's unique. And that's the goal, right? When we are giving a testimony and a witness, if our someone sees us, you know, living one way and 
And then we say like, oh, but in the, you know, like we're to love one another. They're like, well, you're not loving each other. I saw you, you know, (laughs) you don't care about your fellow believer. And so in verse 19, he says, why do we pursue these things? It makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. He says that in verse 19. So again, unity, love, right? Those are just like really wanting us to understand why do we do these things? In verse 20, he says, do not. For the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So the work of God, you might remember, um, and it's drawing upon like what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, which if we had time, I would turn there and talk about that more because it's really cool. But it basically is where, you guys are familiar with this, but it's where God, you know, is talking about where God brings together Jew and Gentile. Like, I don't know if you guys, and I know you guys are so well taught, you guys know this, but that's huge. Like, the fact that God was able to break down that wall of hostility, like, that was huge in redemptive history. And so Paul's even drawing upon that. He's like, remember that? Like, you're destroying that if you selfishly just, like, disregard your brother or sister in Christ and don't care about their conscience. And at the beginning of this chiasm, uh, many of you probably have memorized uh, Romans 12.1. He says, present your bodies as, you know, living sacrifice. Bodies, plural, and then in the Greek, sacrifice is singular. So he's saying, like, all of you need to be like one. That's how unified. So anyway, I just bring that up because unity is such a big theme here. So Paul does acknowledge that all things are clean, right? But if there is a stumbling block for your brother or sister in Christ, then it is wrong. It's actually simple for you. So verse 21 says, and I'll just read this here. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So again, he's just driving that home. Like you do not want to do that. You do not want to mess with what God has accomplished. And then in verse 22, he says, you can have, you know, a conviction like the Gentile. Again, like it's not about the stronger brother becoming the weaker brother, or the or vice versa, right? It's not about that. You can both coexist with those two different convictions. They have to be biblical. That's key. But um, he says, at the end of the day, if it's not loving to your brother or sister in Christ, like they are caused to sin, then you are not to do it in front of them. But if you're like, wait, so am I ever allowed to exercise that freedom in Christ? Yes. If you are around someone who, you know, like, let's say a fellow Gentile in this case or something like that, that wasn't caused to stumble by your actions, then yeah, it would be permissible. Or he even says in verse 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. So he's really trying to make sure you're others focused. So when you're around other people that you're considering and considerate of their beliefs their convictions. So at the end of the day, why is this so crucial? Well, he goes on to say in verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So I don't know if those words remind you of Hebrews, but they should, or they might, uh, because In Hebrews, he says, without faith, 
it is impossible to please God. And that's what he's communicating here. If you're doing what you're doing, you're to do it out of faith. And why is faith so important? It's because faith is based on convictions. It's based, you have to believe something in order to do something. And so at the end of the day, Paul's driving to the, really the core of the issue. God wants your heart. So wherever you're at, whatever belief you hold, whether you're the weaker brother or whether you're the stronger brother, the point is God wants your heart. He wants you to worship him, not just externally, but from your heart. So I realize we're at the end of chapter 14, but actually, as you guys know, scholars went in there, they added these verse breaks, they added these chapter breaks for our convenience, but those are not there in the original manuscript. So I really think Paul's train of thought continues into chapter 15. And don't worry, we're not going to read all of chapter 15. <laughs> but just the first couple verses in part of chapter, verse 3. So I want to read those for us. He says, and this is really written to the stronger brother. Keep that in mind. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And then I can't get into all of it, but he says uh, in the first part of verse 3, for Christ did not please himself. So basically he's setting up for the example that Christ gave us of this, right? Christ is our greatest example when it comes to laying down his life for another, like sacrificial love, like that's Christ, you know, he, he's like that, the embodiment of sacrificial love, right? So I wanted to make sure to read that because I think he sums up well the main thrust of this passage. The main thrust, again, is not about changing the weaker brother to the stronger brother, vice versa. It is about loving one another and the onus, like the main command, actually falls on the stronger brother. So if you are that person who opens your Bible and you're like, oh, I'm the stronger brother, careful, because you have more of the commands. You have the heavy weight of this passage. He's actually saying, you have a lot of work to do. You need to be very aware. Hello, Snickers bar. <laughs> I've actually been eyeballing that for a while. It's like it knew. It knew. It was like hanging on by a thread. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, so anyway, it basically, you know, chapter 15, uh, I think, encapsulates what Paul's been saying. He's like, you as a stronger brother, you need to get to work. You need to be aware. So doesn't this kind of wake you up to like, I need to kind of maybe get to know my friends a little better, see where they're, they're coming from, you know, and not just assume you know that where they're coming from or assume they have the same convictions as you, right? Because like my mother-in-law, not that... You know, it was maybe the best approach, but she, she kept it to herself, right? She didn't tell her crush because she didn't want to disappoint him. She was like, oh, it's like, this is really hard for me. Yes, I'll go, but I know I'm disobeying God. Like, you never know. That could be something where a friend of yours is, is struggling with that because they don't want to, you know, hurt your feelings or, you know, say no to you. So it's good to get to know your friends, obviously. And maybe those that you don't know very well, get to know them, figure out their background, where they're coming from. And so... Just to reiterate, the weaker brother is the one who believes something that God doesn't necessarily require, but the stronger brother, he's the one who lives out his Christian freedom. But again, the main point here isn't who's right, it's who you need to prefer one another. No matter who you are, you need to prefer one another. The onus, though, is on the stronger brother because he's the one who can, he can have self-control 
and he can, you know, refrain from exercising a freedom. So obviously, we could be here all night if we had time. <laughs> I think it would be so cool to do more on this. But I think before we conclude, it's helpful to note that not all the differences you have with somebody in the church are going to fall under this umbrella of the weaker brother, stronger brother issue. So I just want to clarify just briefly three other differences that maybe you will encounter with a fellow believer, and they are different from what Romans 14 is talking about. So number one, I think I already touched on this at the beginning, but a weaker brother, stronger brother issue is never one the Bible explicitly calls sin. Sin is an obvious non-negotiable. If I were to come to you, like Connie, for instance, I'd be like, I, you know, lying, little white lie here and there, it doesn't bother me anymore. It doesn't go against my conscience. I would hope that you'd come alongside me and be like, no, like, I need to show you from Scripture, God hates lying of all kinds. Like, it doesn't matter that it doesn't go against your conscience. In fact, that's actually a sign of a deeper issue. But, like, that's not good, right? And so that is okay. If you have a friend that sees a particular sin is okay with them, lovingly come alongside them gently yes but show them truthfully from scripture that god doesn't approve of that so that's absolutely not a weaker brother stronger brother issue uh, number two <laughs> this is kind of a funny example for this one but oftentimes people will mistake their own personal preference like they have a really strong preference on something for a weaker brother stronger brother issue so, for example, there was a lady in our old church, uh, Grace Community, and she thought that her Romans 14 issue was with uh, men and how they dressed on Sunday morning. So she had really like a, just a very strong preference for men wearing a full suit and tie to church. And if they didn't, she was like, oh, Romans 14, like, it's just, you know, it was hard for her. And, but is this really a weaker brother, stronger brother issue? I mean, like, if it was, like, the logical end of that would mean that she's actually tempted not to wear her full suit and tie to church every single Sunday. Like, she's a woman, obviously. That wasn't her temptation. It was just a preference, right? She just preferred that. So that's not a weaker brother, stronger brother issue. <laughs> and, you know, just like, I prefer strawberry milkshakes over chocolate milkshakes. And you probably maybe disagree with me. A lot of people like chocolate. Like, if you do, it's okay. Like, that's not a really crazy issue. You don't have to, like, drink your chocolate milkshake in private. Like, it's okay. Like, I'm cool with it. I understand. It's just a preference. So, number three, there are times when you have to face wisdom issues in life, right? You have to make a call that is you know, just simply based on the wisdom that you've derived from God's word, but it's not, maybe there's something that you're dealing with, whether it's a gray area or a decision you have to make. And it's not explicitly talked about in the Bible. Like it's not saying like, you need to do this. Like it might not be there. And so an example of this would be your parents don't have a specific verse that says, this is when, you know, so-and-so gets to start dating. Like my child gets to start dating. Like they don't have that. They have to use the wisdom God has given them, right, to make the right decision for your particular family. And I would argue that some parents exercise more wisdom when it comes to this area than others, and that's okay. It's not like they're sinning by doing that, because some parents are a little bit more, like, nonchalant, like, oh, well, you know, whenever they find the right person, like, 
it's all good, you know, I'll accept whoever. And then other parents are a little bit more like, yeah, not ready yet. But, you know, I'll let you know when you're allowed to date. And it might not be this year, and maybe it's a little later than your friends, but, and it doesn't mean your parents think that your other friends are sinful for dating earlier than you. It doesn't mean that. It just means for you, they've decided that it would be wiser to wait, right? So that's just a wisdom issue. That's not a weaker brother, stronger brother issue. And I think that maybe is helpful to understand because when it comes to this passage, you really have to be careful because of the cultural, like this is really, I think you've probably felt it, it just feels so removed from our culture. Like it's hard to relate to almost, right? So you have to be very careful because of that to really understand all of it so that you're not just willy-nilly like, oh, this is a weaker brother, stronger brother issue and, you know, apply it wrong. So we have to be very careful. So I want to reiterate though, again, I know I've done this a couple of times, but what a weaker brother, stronger brother actually issue actually is. So in Romans 14, Paul makes clear that a weaker brother, stronger brother issue is one where a fellow believer holds a different biblical conviction on something than you. And if they see you participate in that particular freedom, they are tempted to sin by going against their conscience and participating in that freedom with you. So this is an example that hits close to home. Let's say you're giving a friend a ride in the car, right? You know, you have the knowledge, okay, that this particular friend can't listen to secular music. They believe it's sin for them. That was me. But you believe you can listen to some secular music. This is not the time to blast Taylor Swift's newest album. Be like, listen to this. Like, no, that's not loving. That is not unifying. And it's actually causing your friend to sin, right? Because they might be tempted to do that, but they're like, ah, I can't do that. Like, that's disobeying God. So it would be better for you in that instance to either not play anything at all or play something that their conscience is okay with, like Christian music, like, you know, worship music or something. And I just want to be clear, it's really helpful for you. This is why it's helpful for you guys to get to know each other, you know, not just at a superficial level, like pursue to know each other. That's part of how unity is brought about. It doesn't just happen passively like, oh, we all get along and it's great. No, we still struggle with sin. Like we still struggle with unity. So I came from a charismatic background and I kind of like, you know, used to just not care what I watched, what I listened to, anything was okay, no matter the rating, no matter anything. Like, I was just, like, filter-free, just like anything. And so I kind of reacted when I got to a solid church, Grace Community. I kind of went the polar opposite. I was like, I can't do anything, like, secular. I can't touch it. I can't look at it. I can't be near it. And so I was that weaker brother for a time, you know, and and that's not a bad thing because I was trying to honor the Lord to the best of my ability with the knowledge I had. And in some ways, it was probably wise for me to go through a little bit of a, you know, hiatus. But anyway, but that's just an example of different backgrounds. You know, you just have to keep that in mind when you're trying to pursue unity. It doesn't happen passively. And at this point, you might be wondering, so can I ever like have a conversation with my friend about these kinds of things? Like, what if I just really want to share with them, like, you know, this music or something? Like, can I discuss it? Yes. But the key is they need to come to you. They need to initiate that conversation. They need to be like, okay, so tell me why 
biblically you believe that you can listen to secular music? Like, just enlighten me. Like, what is your perspective? If they come to you, then they're actually willing to listen and perhaps grow in this particular area and please the Lord in, in this different way now, as you are. And that reason why they have to come to you is because you run the risk of sinning if you cause a person to basically deconstruct. So the word destroy in verse 15 of chapter 14 when he says, do not destroy the one from whom Christ died, you know, beating up the conscience, you're basically like beating it up to a pulp, like it's getting destroyed, right? So you don't want to do that. And part of not doing that is allowing the person to come to you if and when they're ready. And, you know, that was kind of like for me, coming out of the charismatic movement, I eventually had conversations because I pursued them and I was just like, okay, explain to me. And I didn't agree right away because I was like, well, I, I feel like I need to be separated from the world. And I just, I don't fully understand that. But the key wasn't for me to necessarily change, but it was, you know, the Lord, the Lord allowed that. So at the end of the day, Romans 14 is not... Again, speaking and saying the stronger brother needs to make the weaker brother change his mind. No, it's for us to accept one another. That's the word that's reiterated. I hope you saw that. Welcome him. Accept him. That's the word that we need to really think about. And beyond that, the stronger brother, again, needs to prefer his weaker brother. Even if it means not enjoying a freedom in Christ, you know, for a time around that person. This also applies, because uh, I know you guys are still developing your biblical convictions. It takes time. They don't just happen overnight. You guys, some of you might just recently have been saved. So you're still developing convictions. So a lot of your convictions might come from what your parents believe or have taught you. So just another quick example. You have a friend whose parents do not touch alcohol ever. And this may be because they fear they will sin if they do so. But your parents, you know, they believe drinking in moderation is okay. They might not always do it themselves, but they just believe it's okay, you know. So this is not a time for you, right, to get into your friend's face and be like, you can, you know, when you hit 21, like, you can, it's okay. Like, this is not the time to do that. That is not the loving thing to do. In fact, that's actually very divisive. Because imagine, like, that friend is probably going to go back to their parents and it's going to be a ripple effect, right? They're going to all kind of be struggling in their conscience. And that is just not the loving thing to do. So if you believe that drinking and your family believes drinking in moderation is okay, um, you are not to try to argue your case, and you're also not to look down on that person. You're not supposed to be like, oh man, like they just don't even realize how naive they are. You don't know what background they've come from. Maybe they have a background of a lot of drunkenness in their family. Like it could be that way. Like again, for me, the charismatic movement was a very, like there was a lot of sin that happened there. And so that reaction can happen. And so that's a very normal thing. So ultimately, if it goes against their conscience, that's okay, right? Just It's okay to just allow that and just be like, okay, the Lord, they're honoring the Lord. And that's what is really, uh, at the end of the day, what matters. So I wanted to bring that up as another example. But again, pursuing unity and love, that's the key. If you come away from anything, like that's the one thing I really want you to consider. Pursue unity and love. So you may come away from this and recognize, you know, in some ways... I'm the stronger brother, but in some ways, now I see it. Maybe I am the weaker brother. That's okay. This is not an opportunity that I want you to come away thinking that, oh my gosh, I need to be the stronger brother and everything. Like, no, that's not at all what I want you to come away from. 
Instead, I want you to think about and ask yourself, okay, now that I know this, and if I am identifying I'm a stronger brother or weaker brother in some areas, what are some ways I can love my brothers and sisters in Christ better because I know this? What are some ways I can pursue unity better because I know this, you know? So that's what I want you to come away with. And obviously, there's so much more I want to cover, but that basically sums up what Paul's talking about, and I think some appropriate, and we can talk more about this if you guys have questions, because I'm sure your brain is probably thinking, like, is this a weaker brother? Is this a, you know, like, you might be thinking about that, so feel free to ask me, but, um, or even the leaders, but yeah, that basically sums up what Paul's talking about, so I just hope and pray that we follow Christ's example, so let's go ahead and pray about this right now. Gracious Heavenly Father, the text of Romans 14 is very convicting. We recognize that we fail. We probably have failed in many ways uh, with not promoting unity as you've called us to do, but instead have been divisive, trying to argue and show that we're right. When in reality, you want us to pursue one another, die to ourselves and love each other sacrificially as you have loved us. And so I pray that that would be our greatest desire coming away from tonight, that we would be thinking about tonight and the days coming up, that just ways that we can love one another well and be more unified, demonstrating the amazing work that you've done in redemptive history. And I just pray that that would be our desire. And Lord, if it isn't our desire, I pray that those here would repent of that and that they would seek to be selfless and seek to love their brother or sister in Christ. So in your name, we pray these things. Amen.